When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the subconscious mind? What's the conscious mind? And how do they influence our thoughts? We'll answer all of these questions and more on this edition of Getting Schooled. I'm Abby Hornacek. The human brain is so complex. You might be listening to a song and get a certain emotion that you've never had before. It might be a happy song and you might feel anxious or sad and you're thinking, why do I feel that way? Well, it might be because of something that happened to you 16 years prior when you were listening to that song and those emotions are coming back up now. That has to do with your subconscious mind. A lot of times throughout the day, we might think we're making a decision consciously, but in reality, it might have to do with our subconscious. So where does the subconscious lie within our brain? How does it affect our human experience? And how exactly does it work? There are so many questions that we need answered. So luckily here to talk about the inner workings of the human mind is Associate Professor of Psychology at the College of William and Mary, Dr. Peter Vishton. Dr. Vishton joins me now. How's it going, Dr. Vishton? Going great. How are things with you? Things are great. I am so, I, I just, I have to start by saying this. I'm geeking out because I love neuroscience and I have been saying we should do a podcast on the subconscious mind because it affects us in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. So I really do appreciate you coming on because this is making my dreams come true right now. I'm happy to do it. And uh, I geek out on this stuff every day. Well, let's geek out together. Goal, I want to stay in college forever. So uh... <laughs> What, you're in the 20th grade? Is that what it was? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, something stopped, like that. They stopped giving uh, certificates and grades and stuff like that a few years ago. But yeah, it feels like that. It sounds like you're overqualified to do my podcast. Uh, <laughs> certainly not true. Well, thank you again for joining me. And I I, I can't wait to get into this. So let's start. Um, I, I want to know, so many times we hear the subconscious, the conscious, and then Every once in a while, there's the unconscious mind. Hmm. What is the difference between those three, or is there a difference between the last two? So uh, usually people describe, you know, conscious as our, our, you know, sort of ongoing experience of being us and doing things and making decisions and, you know, thinking about things. There's this explicit sort of conscious control that we, that I, I and many people would argue is kind of an illusion, actually. We're not really consciously in control of things the way we think we are all the time. Um, subconscious actually kind of goes back to Freud. Psychological scientists are, are often not thrilled with uh, Freud as, um, I, I don't know, as a scientist. There's not a, it's hard to take any Freudian theory and really test it with any sort of good experiment. It's kind of a language for talking about things more than a particular theory that, that could be tested and maybe proven wrong someday. Um, unconscious, though, has kind of emerged from that, that, that notion that there might be important things going on in our head that we're not aware of. That really was that we sort of credit Freud with that. That was kind of his one of his big contributions to the field. So subconscious is sort of this Freudian idea of uh, how the mind might be organized. Unconscious is really defined as anything that's going on in your brain that's important for 
thought and behavior that we're not the, not aware of when it's taking place. Can you use subconscious and unconscious interchangeably? Most places, yes. I think unless okay. there's some sort of a conference on consciousness, and then, people, <laughs> then there I think people would prefer the term unconscious. But by and large, yeah, we think of them as, as synonyms. Okay, I had to pick up on something that you said about the conscious mind. Mm-hmm. You said that you believe or you describe it as being an illusion because we're not actually in control. What do you mean by that? So um, there, there are a lot of different experiments that have sort of pointed to this. Um, the, my favorite one is one that was conducted by a guy named Alvaro Pascoleone, where they are, there are two pieces of technology I have to talk about here before we get to the experiment. Um, so one is a device that, uh, an EEG, an electroencephalograph, it's one of those, you wear a cap with a bunch of recording electrodes on it. Oh yeah, those are fun, especially during Halloween. Exactly. (laughs) Patterns of activity that are going on in your brain. Um, And uh, the other is a transcranial magnetic stimulator, a TMS device that can, um, if you deliver a, you know, when you turn it on, it delivers a, a particular magnetic charge that can stimulate neurons in your brain. Right, so you have uh, the EEG device that can record, and the TMS device that can make brain areas become active. Okay, so you have both of these devices wired up and someone set up. Um, the The task that Pascal Leone gave participants was really simple. It was watch this computer screen. Um, your hands are on the table in front of you. When you see it turn uh, yellow, decide when I get this the go signal, am I going to twitch my right hand or am I going to twitch my left hand? Right. That's all. That's the whole task. So you watch the screen. It turns yellow. You make that conscious decision about what you're going to do. Then when it changes color, then you actually do the thing you've decided you're going to do. The first thing to note is that if I'm just sitting here, even if I'm not moving my hands at all, uh, if I've decided I'm going to move my right hand, there will be a buildup of activity on the left side of my brain. Right. There's oh, sorry, a little more a little more. Uh, geeky stuff to build in here. Our, the right side of our brain controls the left side of our body and vice versa. There's this oh. crossover organization that's there. So if I'm moving my right hand, I get activity in the left motor cortex. If I even think about moving my right hand, I get a buildup of activity in the left motor cortex. So the person sitting there, the screen turns yellow. They decide, let's say they decide I'm going to move my right hand. Um, at that point, you get this increase in activity here. And the researchers can see that. They can see, aha, they, the person didn't say anything, but I know if I give them the go signal, they're going to move their right hand. On the critical trials of this experiment, they, they get the signal. The person decides, say, they're going to move their right hand. Then when they give them the go signal, they use that TMS device to stimulate the other motor cortex, such that when they stimulate it, the person has decided they're going to move their right hand, but their left hand jumps up in the air instead. Hmm. That makes sense so far. So it's yes. sort of, they are in that moment, their their body is possessed by the experimenter, right? It's like you decided, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm, I'm going to walk over that way. And then suddenly your body just goes off in the other direction. That should feel really weird. My favorite piece of data from that study is no one says anything. They just keep doing the thing, right? They keep going <laughs> right along. Um, this was puzzling enough to the Pascaleone group that they, in some follow-up studies, made a point of asking people. They said, you know, that was a funny trial that we just saw. It really looked like you were going to move your right hand, but then your left hand moved instead. And the common answer that people give is, you know, it's interesting you point that out because at the last second I changed my mind. Mm. So their conscious experience is that, yeah, I've decided I'm going to move to move my right hand. And then at the last second, they changed their mind and move the left instead. Hopefully it's, it's clear they, did, they weren't in control of their movement. It was the experimenter that's in control. 
the, the sort of theory of consciousness that emerges from studies like that is that um, we are, in many cases, not in control of our moment-to-moment actions. There's Our brain is still in control of it. In that sense, we're in control of it. But that conscious experience of making a decision isn't the first step in, in making a decision and doing something. It's kind of the last step. Is that because of outside factors? What influences so, that? So, by and large, the the story then, if you're not in the lab, if you're just walking around, um, is that there's something in your brain that's deciding what to do and then implementing those those choices that you've made. Um, your consciousness is kind of riding along. It's sort of a, a passenger up there in your brain, and whenever you do something, it does two things. Uh, first, it takes credit for it. It gives you this strong sense that oh yeah, I did that because I wanted to do it, and then it makes up a story about why you did it. Um, and there often those stories might, sometimes they're related to why we did what we did, but there's some really notable cases where it's not. I do want to expand on that, on that more. Um, and, and just to note, as I'm sitting here now, every time I move my right or left hand, I'm thinking about that. And I feel like I'm overthinking. I'm like, wait, did I consciously make that decision? <laughs> now I'm in my head. I think there's but- good evidence that you didn't, right? That the, your conscious experience of making that decision is the last thing that happens. It almost happens as the action's happening, sometimes even after you're already gearing up to perform the action. Just very quickly, what is usually the line or the order of things that happen? So there, so if I'm, if I'm going to do something, I sort of, I want to get away from the simple motor stuff that like twitching or up, say it's a, there's a, there, and people have done experiments like this in the past, say there, it's a juice tasting experiment, right? You Mm -hmm. you give people or a marketing study, you want to know, how should we make our juice so that people will think it tastes good? And you give people a range of different cups, and you say, uh, you know, taste these different juices and tell me which one's the best one, right? So people go and they taste the different juices. Um, In the sort of the ideal version of this experiment, all of the juices are exactly the same. Right there, it's it's just th- three, five cups of the same juice. So someone tastes the juice, and then they um, then you say, okay, which one did you like? And then they point at the one that's the one they prefer, and they say, you know, that's I think that was the best one. Um, if you then ask them why they they made that decision, um, they'll they'll give you lots of reasons for it. But the the real reason in most of those studies is it's the one on the right. Uh, we all have sort of this. Most people are right-handed. Most people have sort of a right side bias. So that they will tend to pick the one on the right. Really, uh, they'll give you lots of reasons for it. That, well, I, you know, I the the flavor balance was better. The, <laughs> the the other ones were just a little too sweet or something like that. No one will say I picked it because it was the one on the right, right? It's but that even when that's the thing that's driving the choice. So Does anyone say they're all the same? Uh, I'm sure eventually someone says that, but by and large they don't. If there's sort of a presumption that, well, they're having me compare them, so they must be different. Most and is it, most, sorry, is there still a right-hand bias if you're left-handed? Uh, if you're left, if you're left-handed, there is typically not a left-side bias, but less of a right-side bias. Got it. I'm not sure why that is, actually, but that's an that, that interesting question. No that's one. another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, so you were asking about the time course of things. So the yeah. idea there is uh, you've tasted these juices and now you think about them. Um, and you're, you've decided I'm going to pick my favorite juice at that point, your, um, your hand doesn't move right away. Your, your, you know, there'll be a buildup of motor activity here that proceeds for maybe a second or so before your hand begins to move at about the same time your hand moves, you, it sends a, the motor cortex sends a copy of that signal to wherever your conscious awareness is. And at that point you feel like you're deciding, even though for, 
at least a second, maybe more, you've already been decided, your, your hand is already reaching out to indicate what that choice is. Ah, I see. Okay. So then if we're talking about the subconscious mind, because mm-hmm. what fascinates me about this is I feel like there are so many decisions that I make throughout the day Mm -hmm. that I don't realize are influenced by my subconscious mind, whether it's, you know, the choice that I make to listen to a song or the way that I feel after or during while I'm listening to it. I'm like, why am I feeling that emotion? Mm -hmm. Even though I feel really happy right now, why does it, you know, so it's, it's very confusing. And I'm, I'm wondering how big of a role our subconscious mind plays in our everyday life. It's hard to say moment to moment exactly what it is, but it's certainly the case that, um, it, well, emotions are actually a good example of something that's heavily driven by unconscious influences. You can, you can kind of decide, you know, I'm, I'm feeling, feeling sort of down. I want to feel up. You can sort of, mm-hmm. you know, try to make yourself feel happy. But if you're sad, it's tough. That, that's a tough thing to shake off. You can't sort of choose which emotion you're going to feel on a moment to moment basis. They're, um, I don't know, the professional actors, I guess, are good at that, right? You can, if you think about something really sad, you can make yourself feel sad for a little while. Um, there, are, there are things like listening to music that will induce a particular emotional response to something. Um, but it's definitely our, what emotion you're feeling at any given moment in time is not really up to you. There are unconscious or if you want to call it subconscious systems that are influenced by all kinds of things, everything from events that have taken place in our life, music that happens to be taking place in the background, and even, I don't know, biochemical things that are happening just in terms of you know, keeping different um, neurotransmitter systems balanced that will, that will regulate your mood over time. So then how does the subconscious mind work? What, what part of the brain lights up? What, what happens? Can you take me through the science behind that? So that's, that's sort of a... a it's hard to think of a bigger question than that, right? So if you're asking how does the life? how does the unconscious mind work, it's sort of like saying how does the mind work, right? There are tons of influences that that play a role in that. Um, there there have been a number of studies trying to look at ways that we can influence its performance. Um, so I've the one I know this is a, a very old study looking at uh, how uh, the the posture of our face might influence the mood that we're feeling. So when people are happy, they often smile. When they're unhappy, they, they typically frown. But our sense is it's the emotion that's the starting point of that. And that, that influences the actions. Some of the influence flows in the other direction as well. Uh, so there was a study that, that someone did where they were given a questionnaire. And they, you know, in addition to answering a bunch of other questions, they were asked how they were feeling. Like on a scale from 1 to 10, where 1 is really sad and 10 is really happy. Just pick a number on here that, that matches your current mood. Um, some of the people were asked to, while they were doing the survey, to hold a pencil in their teeth, sort of like a, like, like that. Um, mm-hmm. Some people were asked to hold the pencil between their um, their upper lip and their nose, so sort of like well, I can't do it very well. I have a little. <laughs> right I'm impressed. But when when you're holding a pencil in your teeth, you kind of have to make a um, a smile posture, yeah. right? It, it doesn't whether you're happy or sad, you're making this facial expression. When people are making that facial expression, they typically report that they feel happier. When people are forced to hold the pencil up here, it's sort of forcing their mouth into a frown. They report that they're feeling sadder. So you can sort of use this to try, if you're feeling, if you're feeling sad, making yourself smile, even if you don't feel like smiling, uh, doing things that when, that you might do when you're happy, going to, I don't know, talk to people and walk around and do stuff. When you're engaged in those actions, 
sometimes the emotion follows the actions instead of the actions following the emotion. And that comes from your subconscious? So most of the people, when they're doing those studies, when they're holding the pencil in their teeth, there's nothing about holding a pencil in your teeth that, that is especially happy, right? And they're not telling the people to choose to be happy, but it has that effect. That said, we could, if, if I know that holding a pencil in my teeth is going to make me feel a little happier, I could choose to hold a pencil in my teeth. And then, so now I'm consciously choosing to do that. Then it'll go via the unconscious to make me feel happier. Well, it's consciously making me happy to watch you try to hold the pencil between your nose and your, and your, <laughs> if you could just do the rest of the podcast like that, that would be I, great. No, I don't think I can. It's a tough, bummer, bummer. Well, it put a smile on my face. Good. So are there times too, when your subconscious breaks through more often? And, and I, let me explain this for a second. There are times where by nature of the job that I do in this building and a lot of other people do in this building, your hours shift. And there are times where I go to bed at midnight and wake up at 3 a.m. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed, and I don't know if this has to do with the subconscious mind, but I'm curious if it does. When I wake up and my alarm goes off at 3 a.m., so my body's kind of in the state of shock and adrenaline. Mm-hmm. And every so often I will get like a random song playing in my head that I haven't heard for 15 years, Mm -hmm. like a Nelly song that I listened to as a freshman in high school, you know? And I'm like, wow, why is that song in this moment playing in my head? Is it because Uh, I'm so tired? (laughs) So probably, I I wouldn't think it would necessarily be because you're tired. Although when, when we're tired, we're sort of, uh, I don't know, less focused on things. Our, our attention, that word attention is one that sort of, goes back and forth with consciousness, right? If I, if I focus my attention on some particular thing, that's going to occupy my conscious awareness a lot. As we get tired, our ability to focus our attention and keep it focused is going to be a little less, less effective. So maybe your mind is drifting a little bit more when you're, uh, when you're awake. But again, I, I, you can choose to think about a song, but where those songs come from when they, I don't know, the Gilligan's Island theme or whatever, it drifts into my head and it just sort of gets stuck there. That's, that's obviously not something you've consciously chosen. It's something that for whatever, and I don't think we can ever really know in that particular instance, what the reason was something, you know, you're, you were thinking about some topic that was related to some other thing that kind of reminded you of some other thing. And that stimulated wherever in your brain, that song was stored, that area becomes active. And then you start thinking about the music. So is that your subconscious? I, I would say, so it's something you're not choosing, right? You're not explicitly consciously choosing to think of that Nelly song. So yeah, almost by definition, that's going to be an, an unconscious choice. So anything that you don't choose to think or to do is coming from your subconscious. At least that's, that's part of the yeah, process. That's sort of by definition. That's that the thing that we're fascinated with is how does that work and how much of us of what we're doing, even when we feel like we're being conscious with our choices, how much of it is driven by these unconscious uh, processes that take place in our brain? All right, we've got to step aside for a quick recess, but we'll be back right after this. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Are there bigger events that happen that might control your subconscious? Is there, are there people that are more susceptible to being controlled by their subconscious than others? I, I feel like there, there hasn't been a whole lot of work trying to look at that. So the idea would be, 
I don't know, the, the term that comes up in psychological science is, law, is uh, individual differences where, so I can talk about, you know, we brought a bunch of people in and we tried this, this task with them and they, you know, they're the, the wrong hand jumped and they didn't notice, but some people did notice and, you know, different kinds. Is there something, can you give someone a, I don't know, a personality uh, profile assessment that will predict what their data is going to be like in the study? As far as we can tell, the stuff I'm talking about here is kind of universal. Um, everyone seems to exhibit these kind of tendencies. So yeah, the short answer is no. I want to say that it's uh, all of us are, are subject to this illusion of this sense that we're in control. Of. Uh, <laughs> well, that's a scary we, thought, huh? We all go to sleep at night, right? And lose consciousness. And then, and our, our brain doesn't shut off when we're asleep, right? There's a whole lot of activity in your brain while you're asleep. And then at some point, something changes and we become conscious again. Every day we sort of uh, sort of go in and out of this conscious state of existence. Um, and yeah, it's kind of a universal. You sort of need it. If you right. not sort of, you do need it. If How you much, don't sleep, things break down really fast. Right. How much of our brain do we actually use? So there's, there's this myth that um, it's not clear exactly where this came from. Sometimes it's attributed to Albert Einstein, but okay. I don't know why it's pretty clear. He didn't study this where people would say that we only make use of about 10% of our brain. That's uh, first off. That's that's very much a myth. If you, oh. when you use these uh, uh, neuroimaging things like an EEG cap or an fMRI sensor, the the way you try to I don't know localize some function, figure out what part of the brain does language. Um, what you might do is have someone in an fMRI scanner and uh, have them I don't know first lay in silence and then play someone talking and see which area of the brain lights up um, that be, you know, becomes. Uh, more active, receives more blood flow, things like that. Um, what you do then to try to isolate it is you take what was the pattern of activity when they were hearing the speech and you subtract what was the pattern of activity when they weren't hearing the speech. And there might be some areas, well, typically there are some areas of the brain that are more active for speech than non-speech. Um, and so you get this nice you know, picture of the brain and you highlight the areas that were more active. But it's not, the other areas of the brain weren't inactive. The, at any given moment in time, most of the neurons in your brain in any you know, given 10 or 15 second window are active to some extent. There's a base level of activity that's there all the time, the, uh, such that, yeah, the whole brain's active all the time. We, we don't know exactly uh, which areas are involved in doing which things. We could talk about changes in activity, but um, it's not the case that only 10% of the brain is used for really pretty much everything or anything rather. Every, the brain, whole brain's involved in just about everything. That how much we understand, though, uh, depends on how you quantify how much we understand. I think there are um, I, some of the biggest mysteries left in science are about, um, you know, we know that when you remember things, right, when, you, when we're experiencing this conversation, if I remember this conversation later, it's because right now while I'm experiencing it, there's something about the pattern of connections in my brain that's physically changing. But no one has been able to do anything to sort of look at the brain and say, ah, there, I can see his memory for that conversation. Mm. Yeah. Even we sort of have some, I don't know, guesses, some, uh, some pieces of evidence about how that might take place. But the way it happens is still just an enormous mystery. Mm. I, is there something that you as a human might pick up on that you don't consciously realize that that could be affecting you and then it could play a larger role in, let's say, two weeks. For example, you're watching me right now and behind me is 
New York City, mm -hmm. right? You might not be able to see the whole skyline, but you might notice this building right here. And in your head, you might, again, not be paying any attention. Mm -hmm. But like, okay, that's New York City. And then maybe three weeks from now, you're deciding where you're going to go for vacation. And maybe you have this feeling and you just love doing this podcast so much and you have so many fond memories of this podcast. And you're like, wow, I have happy memories associated with seeing a vision of New York City. Mm -hmm. Maybe we should go to New York City. Mm -hmm. Does that happen? Like, would that be your, an example of how your subconscious plays a role in a later decision you might make? Uh, absolutely. So there's a general principle you see if there's something, when you look at something, something for the first time, if it's a novel picture, a novel place, something like that. When your brain is processing that information, it will be uh, very active because everything's very novel. Um, the more familiar you become with something, the less activation you will get in, say, your, your visual cortex. The more familiar something is, the lower the activation will be and the faster the processing will be. This is sort of the principle that I think guides a whole lot of advertising. If I just show you a picture of I don't know, a particular soft drink brand, right? I show that logo over and over and over again. And um, as you become familiar with it, it will tend to be something that, that you will choose more often. Um, huh. There's there. Um, yeah. There's some, some funny stuff. And that's looking. subconscious. Oh, right. Yeah. You don't have right. to think about the, that what later on when someone shows you that soft drink logo and another soft drink logo and asks you to pick one, you will pick it. You're not going to pick it. Um, uh, even though it's just the familiarity that's driving the choice in many cases, you're not going to say, oh, I'm going to pick that one because I've seen it a hundred times as much as I've seen that one, right? right. There's just sort of a bias that pulls you in that direction. Um, there's wow. there's some findings looking at how we judge facial attractiveness that suggests this works as well. So if you, the more you have seen some face, the more attractive it looks. Um, there, if um, So if you if you take a face and you use... I don't know, some, some morphing software to make it look really unusual, right? So you, maybe you put the eyes super close together and you make the mouth really large or, you know, there's, you make one of the eyebrows really big and the other one not. When people look at that face, they will say, ooh, that's, a, that's an unusual looking face, right? They're, if you ask them to rate on a scale from one to 10 how attractive it is, they'll, they'll pick a low number there. Um, but if you just, so if you stare at that face, if you just keep staring at that face, over time, it will look more and more normal. It will look less ah. uh, more. It'll look less unusual. So if you if you want someone to find you attractive, just keep having them look at you. Just, uh, <laughs> I'm gonna set everyone's phone background. You hear me? Everyone's phone background to my face so they see it every single time because I could use some help. <laughs> That is crazy. Oh my gosh. Well, that, that's, I was curious about that because back to before I, I mean, I've been craving a chocolate milk for the last hour. I'm embarrassed to admit that I'm 29 years old, but I really would love a chocolate milk right mm -hmm. now. I'm like, why would I want a chocolate milk? I, I can't remember the last time I had chocolate milk. And I'm wondering if maybe I saw one somewhere and I don't remember. And I'm wondering if that's my subconscious then telling me that I should drink a chocolate milk. So there's a whole lot of work looking at eating behaviors that, um, looks at a lot of unconscious influences on our food choices. So uh, chocolate milk's good is, is maybe a part of the reason that you're craving a chocolate It's milk. so good. Um, I actually did have one last week. I think I lied about that. I'm I, so sorry. I had to come clean. <laughs> why, why people crave certain foods um, sometimes is a, a function of your past eating experience uh, and your brain seeking out certain kinds of nutrients. So um, I don't know if you are, if there's some nutrient that's in, in milk, that, well, let me, let me actually let me back it up a little further. When whenever you eat some new food, right, your your body does a little, I don't know, a little chemical assessment of what was in that food. 
right? So you have a certain set of, uh, you see the, uh, the food, you, um, you feel the texture of the food as you're, you're drinking or, or eating it. There's the, the taste of it. There's the smell of it. All of those things sort of get in as the food experience. And then your body waits to see what happens when, as you digest it, what kind of nutrients were in that? Were there a lot of calories in that? Were there um, things that your body can use to do things better? And as you come to need those nutrients, if you have a, I don't know, if, you, if you're not getting enough protein in your diet, your body will cry out for things that have been associated with getting lots of protein. Mm. If um, I'm trying to think what would be in uh, um, the chocolate milk in particular, I don't know, maybe some protein. So I feel there's protein, protein in there. there, but why, why chocolate sugar. not? I could use some sugar. Steak or <laughs> mushrooms or something like that. Well, maybe sugar. Right. Maybe if your blood sugar is low, when you are shown pictures of things that have lots of sugar in them, your body will unconsciously connect the things it needs to the things it has associated with that food in the past. And there you go. All right. We've got to step aside for a quick recess, but we'll be back right after this. So this is, I got to, I got to move on from food because this is making me real hungry. But uh, last question I'll have about that is just talking to you right now. It seems like our subconscious controls so much of what we do throughout the day mm-hmm. or our unconscious, subconscious. I'm using them interchangeably, but you were saying, you know, there are minor differences. So hopefully I'm using the right, the Most right. Most of the differences are, differences are historical and they'll matter to people who study psychology and neuroscience, but Probably not to anyone else. So. Okay, perfect. We're in the clear then, hopefully. Unless there's someone that's listening right now who studies. You know, who. Anyway, so it seems like so much of our lives are controlled by our subconscious mind. Mm-hmm. Would you say, or has there been any research that has shown that our subconscious mind actually might play a bigger role than our conscious mind in our decisions that we make throughout the day? So, I, yeah, that's, that's a really hard question to answer. Again, it's a really big question is... What is this, what is consciousness is something that's been really hard to nail down, right? The, um, uh, and so until you could really know how much is conscious and how much is unconscious in terms of controlling our behaviors, you have to come up with a good, clear definition for what conscious is, right? You can, you can learn things without being aware of learning them, right? The, um, I was just talking to someone earlier today about something called eye blink conditioning, right? So if you... Uh, bring a participant into the lab and you say, oh, here, we want you to wear these special glasses. They, they uh, you know, help modify what we're going to show you on this computer screen. I just want you to look at the computer screen and um, we're going to ask you to, to look at a sequence of images. And if you think it's a good image, press one key. If you think it's not a nice image, you don't like it, press a different key. So that's sort of the cover task of this study. That's not actually what the experimenters are interested in. It's just, hey, look at these pictures and tell me how much you like them. Mm-hmm. Um, Unbeknownst to the participant, built into this uh, this glasses is a system that can deliver a little puff of air uh, that blows on the eyes. Um, it's very quiet. Most people, in fact, they're, usually they're asked at the end of the study, "Did you notice the puffs of air?" And almost nobody says says yes. People, it's it's a really subtle way to deliver it. Every time there's a puff of air that blows on your eye, you tend to blink. Right? There's this reflex that's built in that, frankly, protects our eyes. Um, if you set the study up so that Whenever there's a, uh, a red picture that appears, about 500 milliseconds later, there's a little puff of air that's delivered to the eye. Um, and if it's a green picture and a blue picture, nothing, nothing. But when that next red picture comes up, half second later, a little puff of air. Um, within a few hundred pictures of someone looking at this, even if there isn't a puff of air, anytime there's something red on the screen, you blink. Um, mm. That is, you can unconsciously learn to associate different things. 
uh, like in this case, color uh, color of the picture and 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 the the puff of air. Um, but it can even be more complex stuff. It can be stuff like anytime it's a mammal that's on the screen, uh, such that they're all novel pictures. It's not that you're looking at the same thing over and over again. Your brain can learn this association between this really complex category that includes you know, obviously people and dogs and cats, but also whales and dolphins and things that don't really look like, like the other mammals, it still forms this association. So you can, I don't know, you can learn, you can, uh, you can do things without being conscious of them. You can eat things without being especially conscious. You can do all of these things without really, really being aware of it. What is it you need your conscious focus to do? Um, and I don't know, near as we can tell that there's, there's not a whole lot, right? It's, it's this thing that um, that we do a lot. So it, maybe it enhances our ability to focus our attention. It certainly it seems to be very wrapped up in our ability to to talk about things. Mm-hmm. But um, so I from from that perspective. So your question was how how, how much does conscious versus unconscious control our, our yeah. control our behaviors? I went to my looking at it, and it's this isn't a, a careful like addition and subtraction of it. I think there's an unconscious element to the control of almost everything we do. Mm. We, uh, we rarely know exactly why we did something. Uh, we do it and then we can come up with reasons for why, you know, I would have expected myself or maybe any reasonable people, any reasonable person to do that thing. But, um, often the, the things that guide it are just, they, they're not what we think they are. Right. From now on, anytime anyone asks me an explanation for why I made a decision, I'm just going to say, I don't know, it was my subconscious. That's all, that's all I'm going to say. Ironically, I, that might be more accurate. Than there you go. I love it. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to quickly follow up, but I don't mean to get too much in the weeds, but I just, I selfishly, I love this stuff. Mm-hmm. And you were talking about the association with that puff of air in the eye and yeah. images of red or mammals or whatever mm-hmm. it may be, and it kind of influences how you blink. Could there also be an association with an unpleasant, I can't imagine, even though the person didn't know that air was being puffed in their eye, Mm. but maybe they felt a little uncomfortable. They didn't realize why they felt uncomfortable. And Mm. then when they saw that red image, or let's say it was a rhinoceros Mm -hmm. and they got a puff of air in their eye, would they then associate that with maybe having an unpleasant experience? And then are they more likely to choose that image as one that they don't like as much? Um. So the, the puffs of air that I'm talking about in the eye blink conditioning study are, they're really subtle. So it's mm. not like a, it's not like someone blowing on your eyeball. That could let's be say, really let's bad. say it was someone blowing on but, your eye. But they're the, um, I don't know, it's, I, I'm thinking about food now more myself, but that's, <laughs> there are lots of unconscious things that go on with food preferences um, that are beyond our conscious choice, at least almost all the time. So um, there, there's an old, uh, well, sort of, evolutionarily, we think of it as a very old mechanism where, um, I don't know, so people have been on the planet Earth, it's estimated something like 300,000 years. Um, up until about 30,000 years ago, when agriculture was invented, we pretty much just wandered around. We were, we were hunter-gatherers. We went around trying to find food. Um, and it's not like you could watch some podcast or read some book to tell you what to eat and not eat. You had to just, if you were hungry and you found something, you'd look at it and say, well, okay, let's give it a shot. Let's eat that thing. Um, Hope it's not a poisonous berry. Well, and sometimes it was, right? So if it was a poisonous berry, you're probably lucky you survived it once. Uh, but if you get really nauseous and you know maybe you throw up the, the berry that that happened that you happened to eat, you from a safety perspective, you never want to eat that berry again. 
Mm-hmm. You don't want to have to kind of, you don't want to need like the hundreds of trials that you have with the eye blink conditioning to learn that association. You want to learn that on one trial at the most. Um, that's that mechanism is still around today. If you've, there's some novel food, um, I don't know if you've never had escargot before, right? The, the, these funny little chewy snails with the strong butter garlic flavor. If you've never had them before and you eat them, um, and then unbeknownst to you, you were exposed to the flu. You know, someone, you, you picked up the flu. You didn't know you were going to get the flu, but it turns out that in the day after you ate those snails, you get really sick. Um, you, even if no matter how much you enjoyed those snails when you were eating them, you will probably never be able to enjoy snails again. Um, there is this single trial learning thing. If it's a novel flavor and you get sick afterwards, it's, there is this strong connection formed that you really will, you might be able to learn to eat those things if you need to eat them to survive, but you'll probably never enjoy them again. Um, so I would guess in the eye blink condition, it would have to be probably even if it was a really intense puff of air, you wouldn't have an aversion to rhinos. But uh, if you, and I don't know, yeah, that's not really an eating experience. If you ate something and something really awful happened after the fact, that's the kind of association. Uh, I see. I see. Well, since you bring up rhinos and just hunters and gatherers and things like that, I'm now my mind is on animals. And we as humans, we we make these decisions, right? And we can talk all about 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 how, you know, our brain, the neurons connect and the subconscious plays a role. Do animals have the same thing? Is there an unconscious mind or a subconscious mind existent in an animal? So that's another big deep sort of old philosophical question that no one's been ever really able to answer. Um I, Are you saying uh, I'm like an old school philosopher? I, well, no, you're asking the, you're asking the big <laughs> questions. Uh, I'm mostly apologizing for the, answer, the fact that I'm not going to be able to give you the big final answer. It's, That's these all are, right. These are big mysteries. So I am, I am really confident that my dog is conscious, right? It's the, I, you know, read into, I watch him engage in really complex behaviors. I know that there are certain things he really likes and really doesn't like, uh, I feel like I feel emotional responses and things like that from it. I would be surprised if someday, you know, we get the big answer key in the sky that it turns out, nope, your dog was, it was just, he was an unconscious, you know, automaton. It was just a robot. <laughs> it was an animatronic robot that was just made really, really well. Sad, wasn't huh? conscious. But uh, without being able to talk to him, it's really hard to know the answer to that question. Um, I mean, I, well, I talk to my dog a lot. He's never talked back. Uh, and the, and unless, I, I think a lot of people have. There's talked. still a chance. There's still a chance. You never know. There's, um, but that consciousness and even things like memory and language are really tightly coupled. Um, there's a study that uh, I'll try and summarize this quickly. There's, I associate this with someone named Harlene Hain, um, who looked at early kids' memory abilities. Uh, she was really interested in a, a task called deferred imitation, where say she would give kids a, a puzzle box. So it was this box that had uh, buttons and dials and levers on it and things like that, where if you uh, push the first button and the second button, and then you uh, pull the lever, the box lights up and plays music. So our first sort of question was if she wanted to, she wanted to look at things like um, we don't remember things that happened when we were two or three years of age. Does that mean we don't have any memory when we're two or three years of age? And so, so she was asking these questions where she would show the kids how the puzzle box worked and then wait, say, a day or a week or a month and have them come back and see if they could still push the buttons and do the lever the right way. And lo and behold, they, they can. Kids do have memory at that age. There's just something about accessing it 
much later on in life that, that that's where it seems to fall apart in terms mm-hmm. of our memory abilities. Um, but she did this study with four-year-olds where she had them do the puzzle box and then she had them describe to her, um, you know, she'd say, so how do you make the puzzle box work? Uh, what did you do to, to make the, the lights come on and the music play? Um, and four-year-olds can do that, right? They, they're, they don't have the same vocabulary as an older kid. They don't use long, complex sentences. But if you spent time with a four-year-old, you know they could describe that to you. Um, so she did that with them. Then she had them come back six months later. And without repeating the whole process, she just brought out the puzzle box and said, can you describe to me how the puzzle box works? Now, the period from four to four and a half years is a period of really rapid language learning. Kids learn a ton of new words in that six months. They, they start to use longer, more complex sentences as they're getting older. Um, the, the fascinating result for me from her study was if you look at transcriptions of the four and a half year olds who are describing this memory of something that happened when they were four, they sound just like four year olds. Mm. That is, they only use words that they knew when they were four. They only, that these are kids that are talking in much longer sentences, but when they're talking about something that happened when they were four, their sentences get shorter. Um, it's almost like when we experience something, even if we're not intentionally sort of writing down a verbal description of it, we kind of describe it to ourselves. There's sort of this little verbal thing that happens in our head and our memory of something is really tied to that language such that uh, I, if, if you're experiencing something today, and you, so no one's ever done this experiment. Actually, this would be a cool experiment to do. If there's something you experience today, and then in the next year, you learn some new words to that might be appropriate for describing that thing. When you're recalling it and you're describing it, you won't use those new words because huh. you didn't have those words when you described that particular experience. Interesting. Yeah, it kind of it transports you back to the time when it happened to you, and and it it's it's the mind how it works is just truly phenomenal. It it, it blows my mind to be you know pun pun intended. Um, so so oh, just to close the circle on yeah. that. Yeah. So animals don't really have language, right? Mm-hmm. They they have some language. They animals communicate, but they don't use language like we do. So from that perspective, I bet if they have some conscious experience, it's really different than the one that we have. Because it seems our whole conscious experience is so tied up in that complex language stuff. All right. Well, we'll have to call Doctor Doolittle and ask him to call the animals and <laughs> talk to them to see if if that if it exists. Who knows? Just trying to find solutions here and mm-hmm. answers to the big questions. All right, we've got to step aside for a quick recess, but we'll be back right after this. So you talk about the unconscious mind when you're younger. Mm-hmm. What about as you age? Does your subconscious, unconscious mind change at all as you get older? My, my short answer other is either no or I don't know. That's the, um, mm-hmm. it is the case that, uh, I mean, we're always learning things. We're always, the way you experience something right now is, all, is pretty much always going to be influenced by the experiences you've had in the past. So as you get older, you gather more experiences. Um, but uh, I mean, unless, yeah, I think the, all the things I talked about, like the unconscious influence on our behaviors um, that you see with, you know, people in their, their 20s and 30s, you see those same things with people that are older than that. So, um, yeah, no, I want to say this this interplay of the conscious and unconscious um, processes stays pretty set maybe throughout our lives, uh, maybe from the time that we begin to talk as kids up to the very end. I think there are always going to be these unconscious influences on choices and behavior. Right. Especially, yeah, the more experiences we have, mm-hmm. you you would think that maybe – 
those experiences are dictating the decisions that we make in the future. And then when you're younger, you you have experiences, of course, but maybe you have more mem- memorable experiences throughout your life. You you have that in your toolkit and that kind of drives yeah. you. I think that's probably right. But yeah. I don't know of any good experimental evidence for it. But that, that Well, it sounds like we need to make an experiment. Yeah. Maybe that'll be version two of this podcast. One of my favorite <laughs> things about this field is that, uh, I don't know if you compare us with, I don't know, particle physics or something like that. Uh, you need... You need a, a, a budget of uh, many millions of dollars to, you know, build or get access to some very expensive piece, piece of equipment, a, a superconducting super collider or something like that to, to do things in, in the psychological sciences and neuroscience. There, there are some really big questions that no one's really answered. It's, uh, I think it's, yeah, it's not so hard to come up with new studies to do. Uh, I, I love that. And it's so cool that we can talk about them right here and explore how, there are some studies that are related, but maybe you didn't go in depth enough in some of the studies and there's always room to learn, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I could honestly talk about this topic for four hours. So I might need to have you back on another podcast, but I do unfortunately have to wrap things up. So one last question for you. Sure. Is there anything that fascinates you? You talked about why you love this field so much. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that has fascinated you that you don't think a lot of people realize about either the subconscious or unconscious mind that you would like to share? Okay. So I'm going to share this and hope that I don't sound insane when I do it. It's okay. uh, no so, judgment on this podcast. So I've studied infant development for a long time, and um, the um, that's sort of been I don't know the thing that that I often wake up thinking about in the morning. Um, when COVID hit, all the infant labs, not just here, but I think maybe on the planet, shut down because you know we were worried about infants weren't really for COVID still aren't vaccinated. So there was this big concern about uh, having kids come onto campus and interact with people here. Um, And so, well, I caught up on a lot of writing and data analysis and stuff like that, but uh, I I didn't have my, my research environment around me. The, the thing that I got really interested in was plants. Um, There is some really striking evidence that plants can learn. Uh, and learn to respond to things that maybe they even have, well, learning and memory are sort of part and parcel to one another. Um, there's this, I, I, I don't, yeah, I can't bring myself to say this, but there are things about consciousness and plants that uh, are, 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 well, okay, here's one thing that I find fascinating about. So um, mm-hmm. anesthesia is sort of, it's old technology. Now we, they're using anesthesia for surgery is something that happens a lot. Um, and if someone is, you know, if they're going to do something that would be intensely painful, uh, the doctor puts them under um, using um, any of a variety of, of uh, anesthetics will cause a human to lose consciousness. Um, a lot of those same anesthetics work on plants. So there's uh, there's this plant called the mimosa pudica. It's often called the shy plant. It's sort of, it looks, it's a fern sort of looking plant that if you touch it, the leaves will close up. Um mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen that before. It's that, um, but um, if you take, um, I don't know, ether is an old anesthetic that people used to use, uh, that doctors used to use on people. Um, And you have a a cotton ball soaked in ether and you put it on a, a, next to a plant and cover it in some sort of, I don't know, a bell jar or something so that the fumes will go up and and affect the plant. When you touch the leaves, they don't respond. Uh, when the, those plants, actually almost all plants, if you make time-lapse movies of them, move around a little bit. When they're under anesthesia, they stop moving. Um, when you take the bell jar off, you let it recover, just like a human, it, it regains that ability to move and respond to things. Um, 
I, I think this kind of, the reason I, I find it sort of fascinating is that we think of humans as being really different from animals in general. But the more and more closely we've looked at them, there, there are a lot of, there's a lot of continuity across that animal kingdom. That might even extend across, you know, beyond the animal kingdom to plants. Um, we've all sort of existed in the same, I don't know, ecosystem for a long time. There may be more similarities between those things than we give them credit for. I'm not ready to say plants are conscious, but uh, um, that's, yeah, I don't know. Talk to me in a few years. I think there might be okay. more parallels than we uh, we think there are. I will. I mean, I do a show on Fox Nation about national parks. And when you're out in nature and you see how things are able to work together and just how an ecosystem thrives, mm-hmm. you have to think you have so many different species in one little area. And the fact that they can not only coexist, but they can make each other live better. They cooperate. And they yeah. don't mm-hmm. speak the same language. Mm-hmm. They don't even talk. And mm-hmm. they somehow are communicating. You do wonder if there is something else that we don't know in how these species operate. So I'm with you. I would love this, to have you back on to talk about there's that. There's this dense interconnected network of uh, tree roots and plant roots and fungus that all interacts beneath the soil. Mm-hmm. Um, where I don't know, fungus is really good at pulling certain kinds of micronutrients out of the soil. Um, trees are really good at uh, photosynthesizing and making making sugars, and they share. They work together to do that. There are these um, the the fungus gives up the nutrients, and the plants trade uh, the the sugars for those things, and it helps both of them survive better. That um, I don't know. There's one idea that consciousness might be related to complexity. Right. So if you have one neuron sort of sitting all by itself in a dish, uh, most people wouldn't look at that Petri dish and say, oh, look, it's there's consciousness there. Mm-hmm. Um, but somehow if you have 10,000 or maybe you know several million of those same neurons all interconnected with each other, a consciousness kind of emerges from the interaction of them. The complexity of interaction that takes place below the ground in the soil of a forest has sometimes been described as the, the wood wide web because of how complex the, the interactions are, who knows? Maybe that system can learn and adapt and uh, remember things. And it's the brain of nature. Yeah. It's all of these organisms is the brain of nature. Mm-hmm. Well, last question. And I'm sorry. I, I know I said that one was yeah. my last question. Do we know where the subconscious mind is within our brain? Is there a certain area so, or cortex? So I talked a little bit about that um, subtraction method that people do use to try to identify what part of the region does, you know, X, whatever that task is. So um, when you're processing visual stimuli, there's an increase in activation in the, the back of your brain and the, the visual cortex. When you're um, engaged in language processing, you'll see particular areas, especially for right-handers in the left hemisphere that seem critical to language processing. Um, people have tried to use that technique to look at consciousness. So you have someone who has a brain imaging system and you use uh, anesthesia, actually. So what's going on in their brain when they're conscious and they're aware, they can talk and remember and do all those things. And then as soon as they dip below that, whatever threshold, they're suddenly unconscious. What's different in the brain across Mm -hmm. those things? And I think most people's intuitions was it would have to do with um, the, the part of our brain that's really anatomically distinct in humans is our, we have this giant cerebral cortex that sits up on top. And it's, we think that's where maybe the most complex strategic thinking and things like that happen. Maybe that's where the consciousness resides, but that's not where you get the biggest changes. The, the place you get the biggest changes 
is in something called the reticular formation, which is located really, it's just above the spinal cord. Mm -hmm. Um, And lots of animals, including my dog, have a reticular formation. Um, The the idea that that would be the seat of our consciousness really, I mean, it's it's like, it would be like finding that the seat of your consciousness is in your spinal cord or something. Yeah. Um, But the, the thing that as researchers have looked at that, the, the thing about the reticular formation is it's one of the most highly interconnected areas of the brain. There are, there are uh, neurons that project from the reticular formation to a really broad range of areas in the brain. It's almost like it's maybe a, a switching center where that interaction takes place. And that if you, as someone loses consciousness, it's not that any particular spot in the brain is doing anything that's a whole lot different. It's the coordination of, uh, of those different areas is the thing that drops away. And so, it's also when you sleep, your that helps you. Your spinal cord is scooped. That I could, I might butcher this, but basically, when you go into the deep sleep, that's when your spinal cord is cleaned out, right? And that helps with your memory, and that's why you have brain fog. There are a lot of these subcortical systems located sort of between the cortex and your spinal cord that regulate a lot of these um, awareness processes. And yeah, that's you know, there's a whole other thing of the how healthy it is to need sleep. Yeah, that's, that's a whole. That's other. our next podcast. We do, would you like to come back? Anytime. This was amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Vishden. I'm sorry I kept you so long. I, again, could go for four more hours. (laughs) I I could talk about this stuff all day. In fact, I do. That's my job. There you go. Well, looking forward to having you back on the podcast. Thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. All right. If you miss anything from class, these are my office hours. And here are some top takeaways about the subconscious mind. Number one. All right, you hear all these terms being thrown around, unconscious, subconscious, and conscious. Well, let me break this down for you. Dr. Vishden describes the conscious as an ongoing experience of being us. So the subconscious is made up of underlying thoughts that we don't realize we're necessarily having. Those thoughts drive our actions, decisions, and behaviors. Number two. Your subconscious even plays a role in your likes and dislikes. For example, when it comes to food, you might have had an experience back when you were six years old before you ate a specific type of food. And if it was a bad experience, you might have a negative outlook on the taste of that food as an adult. So very interesting how your subconscious can play a role throughout your life. And number three. Since our subconscious does influence the decisions we make throughout the day, Dr. Vishden suggests there is a way to tap into it. For example, if you're feeling sad, you could just put a smile on your face, even when you don't feel like it, and it has been proven that you might feel a little bit happier. So there you go. We'll leave you with that. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast on The Subconscious Mind. For more podcasts, you can go to foxnewspodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this one on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and leave us a review. This has been Getting Schooled with Abby Hornacek on the Fox News Podcast Network. Class dismissed. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.